10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 10th of April. It's my one year celebration of presenting on Teachers Talk Radio and I'm celebrating with the best guests. We're discussing behaviour management, exclusions, alternative provision, send and inclusion, funding and lots more. It's all kicking off this Sunday. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London. This is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio. Good morning, everyone. It is my first year anniversary as the host on Teachers Talk Radio. I'm very excited because I am celebrating with some fabulous people, one of whom I'm really happy because she put me in a good mood this morning before I even started the show. So allow me to introduce to you Frances Akinde. She's also known as Frankie Toomey. We met at the Women's Academy for Women's Leadership run by Diana Asagi, and we became friends through there. She's a fantastic fantastic head teacher serving at a secondary special special school. She has been a former LEA specialist advisor for SEN, SLCN, qualified SENCO, and is an artist by heart and profession. Frankie, good morning. Are you there? Oh, I'm here. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> We've been speaking good. this morning and it just felt so good reconnecting after a long time. Yeah. Um, uh, how's things with you? How have you been generally? Oh, uh, you know what I was saying? I've uh, We've had a week off already, so I've just been trying to rest. So this morning was a struggle. I set my alarm about five times. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. Um, uh, I'm going to call you Frankie, if that's OK, because that's how yeah. I met you. And that's how I'd like to address you, if that's all right. Yeah, um, absolutely. How long have you... How long have you been teaching and how long have you been a head teacher for? Can you just go through your background and career history for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so I count it by my kids. I've got um, I've got five boys, as you know, and um, I've got twins who are 19 now. And at the time, I don't know what I was thinking. I did my teacher training when when I had my twins. I didn't know I was pregnant with them when... I started and then when I found out, you know, I went to the Institute of Education and they said, look, we'll support you, whatever. So it took me two years um, to do my teacher training. They let me have a year to do my dissertation when I was home with my boys, which was absolutely brilliant. So I count it by their age and they're 19 now. So 19 years I've been teaching, started off as an art teacher um, in mainstream education. And then I just quickly just seemed to connect with those students that other people found a bit harder to reach. And I just kind of had an understanding of them, I suppose. So I slowly moved into um, special education and worked in um, alternative provision and approved for nearly seven years. Then I went to local authority as a specialist advisory teacher. um, And then I moved into specialist advisory teacher for speech and language. Then I went into primary and then into um, secondary special where I am now. So I've been a head teacher 
for three years now, three years in February. So yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. So it's a great experience. And that's a that's a fantastic career history because not only have you had experience in one place, you've had so much experience across the board, which is what I always say to my ECTs or NQTs, whatever you want to call them, that when you do start off in your career, make sure you try um, working mm. in different contexts because it really does hone in um, your experience and bring your skills, um, you know, sharper to speak. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Presumably a lot has changed within the the system since you first started can you give examples yeah. of the kind of changes you've seen both as an educator and a head teacher and yeah. do you think these changes have always been for the best as well you know what it's interesting just going back to um your point about ECTs and and um trying different sectors because when I started in education I um w when I was at uni I loved photography and I was just like I'm going to be a professional photographer I'm going to travel the world that's going to be my life but then reality um <laughs> hit and that wasn't what I was able to do but I remember speaking to my um, lecturer at the time, Paul Halliday, and he said to me, you know, why don't you be a teacher? And I was like, teacher? God, I, I just didn't think about it. <laughs> he goes, no, you know, and that's the thing. Sometimes it's other people seeing things in you. And that seems to be how my life has been, that I haven't always had the confidence to say to myself, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to go for. And it's been other people that have... Um, encouraged me and he said to me you know be a teacher and I said oh you know okay how do I get into it and he said and then I thought okay I'll do citizenship because I was really interested in citizenship um, and he said go through the TES look at um, what has most vacancies and do that and I was passionate about art anyway but then looking through the TES there, at the time there were loads of like art vacancies but there wasn't much for citizenship so that's what I decided to do. And he taught me a valuable lesson because I always thought, right, OK, that's the only subject I can teach. But like you said, my career has been so varied. And a lot of people say, well, I can't get into secondary because I'm a primary teacher. or I can't get into primary because I'm a secondary teacher or whatever. And like you said, I've done everything. And I think the most important thing is thinking about your subject. What are you passionate about? You know, because kids pick up on that, don't they? If, if they've on the timetable, they're like, oh, I need you to fill in economics or maths for two periods a week. I'm like, that's not going to work. Thank <laughs> you. Economics is that. fun. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure it is. But for somebody that flopped A-level economics, that would not be a good idea for me to be teaching it. But it's such an important point. You have to do what you're passionate about, you know, if I hadn't found a vacancy for art and thinking, right, okay, I'm going to be an art teacher, it wouldn't have worked. You can't just do anything, do you know what I mean? Which sounds a bit of a contradiction, but you might go into teaching for a couple of years like I do and then just decide, oh, I want to work in special needs or whatever. You just, you've just got to apply and, and get through it. And I think things have, have been a bit more narrow um, lately, you know, with the whole ECT and everything else. I think the intentions behind it were good, but I think it's put some people off in some ways, thinking, right, OK, this is going to take me two years to qualify and everything like that. So there's a lot of things going on at the moment, but education seems to be like that. There's always a lot of things going on, isn't there? <laughs> a lot yeah. of changes. 
and that that is one a uh, good point that you've made that it is now two years to do the ECT framework it is two years mm. so it does make it uh, a lot harder uh, for some teachers who who don't necessarily want to spend huge amounts of time doing that um, mm. can you think of any time in the profession that there were changes made especially with you being in a special school that mm. you know the decisions were made or policy decisions were made but you didn't agree with uh, agree with them because they weren't necessarily right for the school or the staff or the students. Oh, Sobi, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> it's really difficult because you know I'm part of NHT and um I was I was speaking to this head teacher and she is you know so passionate like we all are so passionate about her school but she finds it hard to deal with the policies and things that are going on at the moment. And I said to her, how do you cope with that? And she goes, you know what? I have to put myself in a micro bubble. I have to just concentrate on my students and my school and ignore all the noise that's going on around me. And you know what? It was such good advice because if you keep thinking about the policies that are coming in, you know, there's so many head teachers leaving at the moment and I still teach art because I have to check in with my with my kids, with my pupils. And I have a lot it kind of respect of, for head teachers who still teach Frankie, to be quite uh, honest. Honestly, it makes such a difference because when you're stuck in an office all day dealing with dramas, you just think, oh my gosh, what is this about? And you have to reconnect with the kids. You have to go out at break time, you know, make sure you're there at the end of the day. You know, I've got my um, Friday break duty and I don't all um, uh, gate duty. I don't always make it, but I try, you know, and, you know, doing my assemblies and things like that because you have to reconnect with them. And teaching art is just such a great experience um, in my school. So, yeah, you have to just reconnect with those things that got you into education in the first place and get support for those things. That constant policy change all the time is really difficult, but being part of a union is so helpful. And especially when I became a head teacher, I joined um, a U NHT specifically for head teachers so that I could get the latest information. I've got a group of head teachers that I can talk to and say, right, how are you dealing with this? What's that policy change that's coming? You know, because sometimes it's easy. I get the um, DFE um, updates every day and I'm like, oh, I missed that one. Oh my gosh, where's this one come from? Especially when they send it at like silly o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, uh, during <laughs> during lockdown, it was like, why would you choose that time to send something through? So many people complained about that. And it is easy to miss, but you've got a whole community. And to me, that's the most important thing. Making sure you've got a community around you to support you is the most important thing as a head teacher. Yeah, I think um, I, I remember my head teacher saying something similar that he was getting mm. notifications last minute, and yeah. it, it is difficult for head teachers. And I do believe exactly what you've just said is one hundred percent. A head teacher cannot do it alone. The community mm. needs to support the head teacher, not just mm. the staff community, but also the community around them. So the governing body, um, the yeah. people, the parents, everybody uh, needs to support the head teacher yeah. to ensure yeah. that it's a successful school. Um, um, and yeah. obviously the education is being delivered in the correct manner. Yeah. Um, you lead a secondary special school. For people who are not sure, can you outline the differences between that your school and a mainstream school? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. So my school is for learners with autism and associated difficulties. It literally runs like a mainstream secondary school on a smaller scale. Um, and obviously our learners all have um, the, their diagnosis and an EHCP. When you walk around the school, you will see that our pupils are different from what you see in mainstream, but we set it up in the same way. So we have our timetable, six lessons. They've got varied um, curriculum. They wear full school uniform. Each part of our school is zoned. So we have like the English corridor, maths corridor, and um, whatever it is, you know, ICT room and everything else. But our classes are smaller. So we have um, 12 learners in a class and uh, at least one support assistant as well. And then, you know, it is a, a normal timetable, but we have visual timetables um, everywhere. So, you know, that helps our learners with anxiety and processing difficulties. And they are constantly checking that timetable. I'm like, you've had this timetable since September <laughs> and it's still like, right, what lesson have I got, got next? So it's kind of when you, when everyone's in that environment, it's a lot easier, I think, to deal with because you've got everybody that's got um, their need, whether it's autism, ADHD, whatever it is. So every, the classroom is set up for those learners. I think the difficulty and the contrast with mainstream schools is that you might have maybe three or four students in your classroom with additional needs. And then you've got, you know, learners that are higher ability as well. And you're trying to cater for a class of maybe 30 um, kids. I mean, I've when I was um, just before I joined my current school, I was in a school where we had like a super class of 70 children. And you've you had like two teachers um, in there at least, but it's still like, right, how am I going to cater for 70 children at the same time, you know? Um, so it is different in, in that sense where, you know, everybody's got the same diagnosis, but at the same time, when you teach a child with autism, you teach one child with autism, you know, you, you have all these strategies that you think, okay, I know that I need to take my time and I know I need to repeat information, but then you've got another learner that presents in a completely different way. So the most important thing for me is relationships, getting to know those children and what their needs are individually, what their interests are, you know, how is it that you're going to um, make that connection with them in the classroom? And I think that applies to all schools, you know, not just special, but all schools. And so... Obviously, in mainstream, we do have SENCOs um, and yeah. we do um, have, uh, you know, we've got information about certain types of students who have got additional needs and things like that. Yeah. What are the most common types of SEND in schools and what has been your personal experiences or, or successes that you've had in your in your provision that you're providing? I think with that question you've just asked, you made an interesting point as well. Every school has a SENCO. Everyone, every school has a person they can go to to ask for advice but does that Senko have time you know if you're in a mainstream school and that Senko is a full-time teacher which is a lot of the time and they've only been given one day if they're lucky to um you know support learners with additional needs do they have the time or the capacity to make sure that that information is going out do they have time to do lesson observations do they have time to put together the profiles for, for those learners, you know, all those things are so important. And, you know, when you're talking about 
you know, the biggest areas of needs. A lot of people assume that it's autism or behaviour, but actually the biggest area of need is um, speech and language. And speech and language underpins all those um, difficulties anyway. If a child has problems with expressive language or receptive language difficulties, they find it difficult with receptive language, they find it difficult to take in what's being said to them. And they might misunderstand, they might not have those higher language skills that are appropriate for their age. So you're you're saying a word and they're like, I haven't got a clue what that means. So they can't access um, the curriculum. And that's really important as well. You know, when they're trying to ex express and they have word finding difficulties, uh, you know, that makes it really difficult for them to access the curriculum. So that's definitely something that is the fundamental need in, in every classroom. And I think basic things like having, you know, questioning, giving time for people to answer, those kind of things are, are really, really important. And so that brings me nicely on to the recent green paper uh, that mm. was published and obviously there was a white paper as well I'm going to talk about the white paper with Carl later on yeah, but yeah. what were your what was your uh, what were your thoughts on the recent paper that was published and and what about funding how does that fit in yeah well you know what I'm not gonna lie it's taken me so long to try and get through it you know we were talking about it this morning it's a yeah, heavy pages. yeah exactly you know what? The thing is, it's like for an SEN document, I'm like, I need to get the audio version because my brain needs some time to process it. And actually, there is a link at the front where you can ask for the audio version. But I wish they just made it more easily accessible so everybody can just read it easily, you know? Um, yeah, so... I hope you're listening, <laughs> Yeah, honestly. Um, yeah, you can I mean, get it on so many um, articles now you just press listen now instead and it will read it to you. I'm like, this is what I need for DFE documents. So when I'm in my other office, which is my car, basically, on the way to and from school, um, that's where I normally do, like, some of my meetings. I'm like, right, I've got an extra 20 minutes. I'll, I'll put in a meeting. I just want to have that in an accessible form. So when I'm in my car in the morning, I can just listen to it and, and digest it. So... <laughs> Okay, so before we go through Frankie's thoughts, I'm just going to go through yeah. a few statistics that I found. And uh, yeah, we were yeah. laughing about this this morning, that the report was very, very intense and heavy. 15.8% um, yeah, yeah. of all school pupils, that's 1.4 million, were identified with special educational needs. 82% of pupils with SEN were in state-funded mainstream schools, 10% in state-funded special schools, and 7% in independent schools, and 1% in state-place-funded alternative provision. Mm. Amongst pupils of SEN support in state-funded primary schools, the most common primary type of need in 2021 was actually what uh, Frankie said, speech, language and communication needs, which was thought 34%. And in secondary schools, this was social, emotional and mental health, uh, which was 22%. And I'm going to be talking about this with Carl later on, which is why I'm both why I'm glad you both came on today. Mm. Um, a further 3.7% of all pupils had education, health and care plans, uh, EHCPs receiving more support than available through SEN support. This is an increase on recent years from 2.8 to 2016. 
uh, in 2016. And amongst pupils with an EHCP, the most common primary type of need in 2021 was autism, um, autism, which was 30%. So basically, to cut it short, what this report was saying were that there were uh, several challenges. One of the challenges were that the outcomes for children and young people with SEN or alternative provision are poor. The second challenge was navigating the SEN system and alternative provision is not a positive experience for children, young people and their families. Mm. Um, third challenge was despite unprecedented investment, the system is not delivering value for money for children, young people and families. And part of this comes down to the fact that there's late intervention, low confidence from parents, carers and providers, inefficient allocation of support, which leads to spiraling costs. So the cost for provision is actually poor value for money. So they have suggested things, which I will come to in a minute. But what are your thoughts on that? I think a lot of the things that they're saying are common sense. And it's things that people have been shouting about since 2014, when we got the last code of practice. So I'm glad, even though it's taken them all this time to kind of have a look at that, I'm glad these things are being looked at. I think for me, some of the important points that they're making is that collaboration, working together, and especially with schools working together as well. Why is it that special schools and mainstream schools and alternative provisions are seen as so separate? We should all be working together with the child in the centre. There's a really um, interesting theory by um, someone called Rothenbrenner, which is about um, systemic theory and interactive factors. If you've always got the child in the middle, that is the number one consideration. What are the things that are impacting that child? And when you were talking about policies, all these policies coming out where it's all of a sudden, right, every area has to have, you know, when I was in, in um, local authority, every area had to have a specialist advisory teacher for autism, you know, for um, hearing impairment, visual impairment. We had a behaviour team that used to go out into schools. You know, I was a specialist teacher that used to go out to schools. Why is it that you go into one area and you can access speech and language support and EPs and, you know, everything, psychiatrists and everything so easily, and you go into another area and you don't get anything? It shouldn't be a lottery based on where you live and what Mm. support you get. You know, and I think that's the thing that professionals and everybody, professionals and parents find the most frustrating. I've had um, students that have moved from my area up to Surrey, up to Lincolnshire, because they've heard that it's a good local authority and their child will get support. That shouldn't be happening at all. So what I'm really hoping for in, in, in this review is that they will listen to parents and listen to professionals and not just say, you know, well, there's enough money at the moment and, you know, every local authority should be able to provide. If the local authority makes it a priority, they will provide everything that they need to. But one of the things that I was disappointed about is that lack of mention of those interactive factors. I know what it's like. I've got five boys, including twins, right? So when they were younger, it was a struggle. It really, really was to make sure that, you know, I had food, you know, to make sure that I had everything that they needed. I remember times when the electricity used to go off and I used to say, oh, gosh, nobody's having a hot shower today, (laughs) you know, and I used to have to put it on emergency or going to get food and I'm having to get, um, you know, reduced food and things like that because we just couldn't afford it. We are living in a time now where families need 
more support than ever and they're not getting it. So regardless of what they're getting in school, how are we supporting children to be in school, to make sure that they've got warm homes, to make sure that they've got enough food, to make sure that they've got uniform and everything else? They're diluting things like um, pupil premium, which means that, you know, you can use it for tutoring, you can use it for, you know, the way that schools see fit. Actually, I disagree with that. I think it should be a lot stricter about what it's being used for, because can we guarantee that every school is using pupil premium in the way that it should be used? You know, things like that, I think they should have been a lot stricter about or gone into a lot more detail about. So I'm I'm glad that, you know, people have got a chance to um, talk about this review and put their thoughts out there. And I hope that they do listen to some of that feedback just to make sure that it is more consistent across the industry. I'm glad they're looking at, you know, a standardised EHCP so that, you know, you're not, again, with that lottery of going from one local authority to another, thinking about, right, that's got to be rewritten or it's not rewritten. And you're just like, that doesn't apply to our, our area. And also things around like what's ordinarily available in an area vary so much. Uh, honestly, the piece of work my local authority have just done around, um, you know, ordinary available, what should every child have in a mainstream school um, before they get additional funding from the local authority? It is just so varied. You know, I'm in Medway and then you've got Kent, their ordinary available document and their support is so different. But then they have other issues with transport, you know, and you just think every, everywhere is a mess, really. What is it that they're going to do to address transport issues in school, to address, you know, like I said, pupil premium, making sure every child has the best opportunity and the best access to education that they can all those interactive factors, you know, libraries, enrichment, outside experience, all of that, all of that to me should be in there as well. It might yeah. be, but I haven't read it all. So. Okay, so they have actually said, uh, luckily yeah. I have. <laughs> they, have they, they have said that um, all of the stuff that you said, 100% yeah. spot on. They've talked about location yeah. and how the provision is very different uh, in different areas of different local authorities. And they've said that they propose to introduce new local SEND partnerships to ensure effective local delivery. So obviously working um, with different um, agencies to make sure that's being done. And yeah. they've also, uh, what they're talking about in terms of budget, they've, they've said that they've increased their total investment in schools by 7 billion by 2024 to 25. Um, and there's going to be an additional 1 billion in 2022 to 23, which is this year alone for children and young people with COP complex needs. They've talked about um, the introduction of a new SENCO national professional qualification. So mm. making sure that you're increasing the number of staff with accredited level three SENCO qualification, especially in early years to improve mm. um, SEND expertise. Mm. And they're also talking about um, making sure that mainstream provision has been improved um, through teacher training, making sure that there's best practice being shared and um, making sure early interventions taking place. Um, and mm. also they, they've talked about talking about um, eight, spending 82 million to create a network of family hubs so more children and young people and families can access wraparound support. Sophia, you know, the, those kind of things we had, didn't we? We had like yeah. short start centres and things like that and they shut them all down. 
You know, I remember <laughs> taking Jermaine. So I'm like, this is just, all, you know, these are all things that we had and they went, you know, and, 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 you know, talking about investment and things like that, it's like, okay, what is that money being spent on? If it's that it's going to go to the local authority and the local auto authority say, right, we're going to top slice schools or whatever and we're going to get the money, are they going to listen to what schools say they need on the ground? This is the thing, or is it going to be, Right, okay, we're giving you money to invest in training. What does that look like? You know, yeah. and, that, and that's the thing that I'm concerned about. What I thought was good around it was the in investment in the Education Endowment um, Foundation because mm -hmm. they do some brilliant stuff. You know, I'm looking yeah. now at, um, you know, the five-a-day principle that um, they've, they've just brought out, thinking about high-quality teaching in the yeah. classroom, in every classroom. And again, that's a concept that we've had already, but they've broken it. I think it was like 10 before we used 10, but now they've broken it down to five areas that are really, really important. If we're looking at that and the investment being in training around explicit instruction, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, scaffolding, flexible grouping, using technology, are they going to be investing in technology? You know, they've said they're investing in buildings. My um, school at the moment, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're a school for secondary learners. You know, we've got 120 learners in the main school, but we're on the site of an old primary school. You know, it's an infant school. So we don't have the space for wheelchairs in the corridors. We only have, you know, one main disabled toilet and things like that. And you just think, you know, I'm reaching out to the local authority saying what's happening with this building is not fit for purpose. And this is what you find in alternative provision and special schools. They find a building um, because they think, right, OK, we need a building to house these pupils, especially with alternative provision. You see alternative provision in, you know, village halls uh, above shops, you know, anywhere that they can find a space, that's where they'll put an alternative provision. There yeah. isn't as much investment in those facilities as they should be. And especially for children in alternative provision, they need the same education and the same access to education as everybody else just because they haven't managed and i'll put it as clearly as that they have not managed in mainstream school and the reason why SEMH is the biggest area of need is secondary is due to anxiety and due to those demands that you see as you're going through school you have a learner that reaches secondary school in year seven and they've been in a much smaller primary school then they go to a, a massive secondary school with a thousand pupils it's overwhelming then you see that anxiety start you see that school refusals start you see those inward or outward behaviors where a child's kicking off in in school um and then you you ask them to read they can't read uh, so they they have a fight instead they get out of the classroom anything is that flight or fight response anything to get out of the classroom I need to see that support in place for every child to make sure that they are able to access education. And that's what I, I'm glad that it's talked about alternative provisions mm -hmm. and that support a lot more. But in reality, what does that look like? Is it going to be that that money is going to certain places or, you know, like we had with the behaviour hubs? Yeah. You know, who, who's running those behaviour hubs? Who's running those centres of inclusion? Who's disseminating that information? And then another area, oh, you got me started now. See, this is your fault. 
a second. We've got to, I'll stop you when we're running out of time. But I'm, in, I'm enjoying it because I'm learning so much here. Oh, like, it's, it's so frustrating because, you know, when you're talking about centres of excellence or inclusion, they need to make it mandatory that every teacher spends time, at least a term, in a special school as part of their practice. And, you know, why isn't that mandatory at the moment? Why is it that people like Teach First? That's not part of their um, of their offer that every student gets that. And people in SEN have been talking about this for so long. So I don't want it to be that the things that the government think that we need. I want them to actually listen to everybody. And I'm glad, like, like I said, it is a consultation, but it's making sure those things happen. I think one of the biggest areas of concern for me is, is that assessment aspect of it. You might have a child, you know, they're talking about EHCPs and the number of children with EHCPs. You would not believe the amount of children that go through school who clearly should be entitled to an EHCP and that's never been applied for. They've never been assessed for that. You ha might have a primary school and as I said, the Senko, they might not have the allocated time. They might not have the expertise to be able to do um, baseline assessments as well. Um, and so they have to get an EP in to do that. If you're in a local authority where they're struggling with EPs, you're not going to get an EP in to do a baseline assessment for you. So it's teaching schools about those assessments that they can do themselves, those basic speech and language assessments, working memory assessments, cognitive ability assessments that they can do themselves that will strengthen that information to put in interventions for a child and to look at what that EHCP should look like. A child should not be leaving primary school without being able to read. That should just be a fundamental basic right. But there's so much pressure on everything else that those interventions go out the window, you know. And, and, and yeah. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you there for a minute, right. Frankie. They do say in the report that a lot mm. of students do, um, because they're, they don't pick up reading so easily they do yeah. get labeled as having special educational needs and that's not always mm. the case and i think yeah, yeah. it's where you're where you're saying that training is important it is very mm. very important mm. for mm. everybody to understand what the signs are and how to look uh, look out for these uh, kind yeah. of things and the kind of assessments that you should be doing mm. they mm. do talk about in the report about targeted support in mainstream schools so that teaching and learning is effective. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is something that is important, that I do think that it, it is a good thing that it should be happening yeah. more on ITT placements. Because I yeah, remember yeah. when I was doing my PGCE, there was very little information about SEND when we were training. So yeah. the fact that they're including that in that now is a good step in the right mm -hmm. direction. Absolutely. And you know what? The, the most important thing for me is thinking about what's good for children with SEN is good for every child. You might have a child sitting in your classroom with working memory difficulties because of anxiety, because they're sitting there thinking about something that's um, going on at home, you know, whose parent is in a domestic violence situation and they don't want to be in school because they don't want to leave them um, at home. You know, all those kind of things affect a child's ability to learn in the classroom. And it might not necessarily be an SEN need. Like I said, it might be, you know, something else. They might be going through some trauma in their life. And that's what we need to talk about more, uh, more trauma-informed schools, more talk around ACEs, talking about those development stages and those things that happen to, to a child in their life that mean that 
they are unable to access. I remember there's so many stories I could give you from when I was working in alternative provision. But one of the stories I remember mostly is, um, you know, a child that I had that was always, always late to school. And, you know, when a child comes into school, my philosophy is like, right, let's not make a fuss about them being late. I'll take them outside the classroom. I'm not going to, you know, start talking to, to the whole class about their behaviour. I'll take them outside. I'll have a word with them and find out what's going on. This child, he was like, miss, I'm sorry, I'm late. Um, my mum went away for the weekend and I had to look after my um, my siblings. This child was like 12, 13. His mum had gone gone out raving in Ireland for the weekend and he was left with his siblings. He was in alternative provision. So it's like those kind of things have been going on all his life and he had a diagnosis of ADHD. And then we had to unpick whether that ADHD, was that due to some trauma and the ACEs and stuff as well that were going on in, in his life? You know, was his ability to not be able to attend in the classroom, was that because of all the other things that were going on in his life and all the tra trauma that he'd had to deal with? And that's where we need that training and that education, really, for that understanding around things. Because, you know, not all of us come from privileged backgrounds. Not all of us come from backgrounds where, you know, we had two parents at home and we had really, we went out on, on, on trips and, you know, had all these experiences and, and stuff. And it's that understanding from everybody around what's going on. And I think that leads to what we say about representation in schools. I know we're going to get onto it later, but, you know, you need people from your type of background, you know, to understand what you went through as a child, to make sure that those students, those learners that are in your care, have the best education that they can because you're coming from a place of understanding. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah, I totally understand what you mean. It is important to, um, you know, for you to be able to understand and put your – it's empathy, really, being able to place Absolutely. yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, the one uh, last thing that I want to ask you regarding mm. the Green Paper, the, the one thing that they do make it very clear in there, and I do think it's important as well, and I know some people in education disagree with this, but I'm going to yeah. still highlight it because I think it's important. Um, the fact that, you know, these students knew, do need support – when they go to FE, um, mm -hmm. you know, further education, and also when they yeah. go into their careers, we need to make yeah. sure that we're not just doing it from early years, but it's all the way right, all the way through, so that they can actually have a good yeah. lifestyle and well-being yeah. when they're when they're much older. Yeah, and you know what? That is a really important point because we do run um, a post-16 provision. We run two. So we have one in partnership with our local college. And it's meant to be a springboard year so that, you know, we support our learners in the first year of post-16 and then they go independently for the second year. Some of our learners need to stay on for a second year because they're not able, uh, as I said, you know, you're talking about mainstream schools where you've got a thousand kids. Colleges have got maybe two, two and a half thousand sometimes. So that environment can be really, really overwhelming, especially without the support of a support assistant full time as well. So that's something that is really important that we make sure there is that support so that people can um, succeed at post 16 as well. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Great. That was a really good summary of the uh, Green Paper. So thank you for that. Now, 
Mm. You've studied and taught art yourself, and there are yeah. people in the studio who are art fanatics like me. <laughs> Can you just explain um, more about that? How did you get into it? What was your passion? What kind of yeah. things do you do? How does it help with education? Because I've I've interviewed someone else before about arts, like art um, therapy and all sorts. Yeah. I'd love to yeah, just yeah. hear more about it. Oh gosh, art, it just runs through my veins, I think. You know, it's always been a way for me to escape <laughs> really from the realities of life. You know, I've always, um, you know, painted or drawn. I first really got into it in school. And to be honest, I didn't have the best experience um, in school. I was in school in a very white middle class area. They didn't want kids like us in the school. They didn't want us in the area. We used to come in from um, Halston <laughs> every day to Leafy Finchley and they were not interested in us whatsoever. I remember being in an art lesson and um, I did like a portrait of myself. My um, art teacher, she was like, oh, that's not right. And she rubbed it out. I banned rubbers in my classroom because I'm just like, that is not a way for you as a teacher you are there to help a child express their talents, you know, and whether you think they've got that talent or not, it's not up to you to say, no, no, that's wrong. And that's the thing with art. It's so down to somebody's opinion. And it, with art, art GCSE, it's whether, you know, your, your teacher likes your style or thinks she's got that talent. But what I love about art, when you go to an art gallery, there's so many different styles there. You know, you've got somebody who is just doing like stick figures, you know, that's still art, you know, or somebody who's doing, you know, sculptures or fine art or whatever type of art it is, that is still art. And that's why I always say to my students that everybody is an artist. So when they're in lesson, I call them artists, you know, we call them scientists, we call them, you know, chefs, whatever it is, whatever lesson they're doing, because they need to see that regardless of other people's opinions, they can achieve in, in that subject. So for me, art has always been a way to kind of express my feelings as well uh, around things. And it's just, you know, there's, um, I can never say his name, but there's a theory around flow and it is so true. You have to find something where you can just lose time. So a lot of people say, right, mindfulness, mindfulness is the way to go. Mindfulness doesn't work for me. My brain, I find it so hard just to be still and in the moment, and I need to work on that. But with art, I just get lost in it, and I can just sit and paint and draw for hours. And whether that's sport, art, whatever it is that you do, you have to find something as part of your well-being that you can just get lost in music, whatever it is. And, you know, we need to make that part of schools as well, just having that focus and that time um, to do that. So, yeah, my, my journey with art is I started with um, photography yes. when I was in college, absolutely loved photography. Then I got into photo media and I've got about 17,000 pictures on my phone because I literally... <laughs> so <have> I. <laughs> I literally take pictures of everything. But there's a really important point in that with working memory and with ADHD and ADHD inattentive in particular and dyslexia, any um, difficulty that, you know, you have to think in visuals, you have to think, right... What is it? What is it that I can use to support that child in the classroom? And visual literacy 
is so, so important. So in my class, every lesson starts with visual literacy. They're, so they have a picture and they have the five W's and they have to describe the picture or they have to use the five W's to think about some questions. A lot of it I'll do is, right, I'm the artist, I'm the expert, ask me some questions, you know, and that gets them thinking about questions. You can do that in any lesson, just having a visual of something. So if it's history, having a portrait or, or you know, a photograph of, of somebody from history or a scene or anything else like that is so important. And then asking them questions about that, doing it as a story starts, you know, it's such a powerful thing in English, you know, and with objects. Oh, gosh. So when I used to support in primary, I used to go around to different schools. I had oh, 65 schools on my caseload that I used to go around to. And I remember a brilliant lesson that I saw uh, with a, um, they were doing the Titanic and this teacher had set up a scene from the Titanic and she'd just gone to like, you know, um, you know, secondhand um, charity shops and things like that. But she'd made this table with all these objects and she said to them, this is from the Titanic. They were like, oh, and she had like teacups and all this sort of stuff. And she said, right, let's have a look at these objects. Picture the scene. Okay, then she showed them like a video on, on YouTube of um, like a scene of somebody kind of like walking through a ship or something else like that when it was flooding. It was amazing. Then she said, right, right. My gosh, the writing from that was absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. Amazing. Just from that visual start, you know, it's so important to think visually, to think about to take notice of our surroundings, to mm. think ab about, you know, all these things around us that we can use as a start. For children that can't write or who struggle to write, that doesn't mean they can't describe something to you. What is it that you can help, um, you know, them to do? How can you help them get that information out of their heads? Is it audio that you can record what they're saying from a visual start, you know, and then you can get it transcribed or whatever it is. Just visual literacy to me, you know, and art is just so important in everything. Frankie, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there for today. Um, is it time already? Oh my it's gosh. time already, yeah. <laughs> You've done fantastic today. I've really enjoyed listening to everything and I've learned so much from you as well as I have our listeners. I've had Ross messaging saying that he's actually said quite a, a a couple of comments um about how well you're doing and the fact that um he was doing abstract stuff mm. and his teacher had a passion and he got an a at gcse but then he couldn't do certain things but his teacher was supportive and it made all the difference so yeah, yeah, yeah thank yeah. you for messaging in ross um frankie thank you so much for coming on today it's been an absolute pleasure um I have you got any last comments before you go? <laughs> Gosh, I mean, I could talk all day really about it. But yeah, I would just say, I would just ask everybody to remember in whatever setting that you're in, the most important thing is relationships and building those relationships with your students. As I said, with visual literacy, my, one of my first things that I did in my school is I just did a PowerPoint and it was all about me. <laughs> and it was like, all this stuff about myself, my life, my family. 
And in the primary school I worked in, I got everybody just to do their own portrait, every teacher to do their PowerPoint of themselves, all their likes and interests and stick it on their door. And you'll guarantee you'll get one kid going, oh, miss, you support Arsenal, your team are terrible. Oh, oh, I've been to that country, or I like that food, or I do this, or I do that. And those are those connections, those conversations at lunchtime and break time when you're not in the classroom, or feeding that into your lesson as well and saying, you know, in maths, okay, so talking about football, because you know there's one child in your class who's not listening but is obsessed by football or or <laughs> racing or something I, else, you know. Frankie, did you say that you're an Arsenal supporter? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. It's why, it depends what team you support. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. A, I don't support anybody, but my family are Arsenal supporters, and I know that Carl's yeah. an Arsenal supporter as well. Oh, good. All the best people are, but it depends who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> right okay on that note Carl I hope you're listening can you please connect um, <laughs> right we're going to come back to Carl in a minute right okay yeah, yeah. Um, so Bia I'm more than happy so to keep on talking until he comes in I know you are you know what I'm hello. Do? Oh, he's there. Hi, hello how are you <laughs> alright I'm all sitting there thinking what's going on here and also, well, let's not talk about Arsenal. If it was two weeks ago, we could talk about Arsenal. Let's leave it alone. Yeah, I was about yeah? to nick your spot. I was like, oh, he hasn't turned up. I'll carry on. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Right. It's all good. Okay, guys. Sorry right, to cool. break up the party. But what I'm going to do is we're going to go over to the news and then we're going to come back to Carl and we're going to have an interview with Action Teacher. So thank you so much, Frankie. We'll see it's you okay. All Bye. right. Take care. Bye. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. 
providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In the Philippines, the Education Ministry has been criticised over the content of a learning module aimed at 17 to 18 year olds. Teachers have said that the module contained negative content about a presidential candidate and praise for the incumbent. The presidential election is just over four weeks away. ACT, Teachers Party List, a congressional group representing teachers, expressed outrage over the learning material and said teachers had struggled enough from two years of pandemic restrictions on face-to-face -face learning. They released a statement which said, Strict adherence to the procedures and safeguards in the production of modules will give justice to them and will ensure that the people's taxes indeed go to quality education instead of shoddy teaching materials and politicking. Education Secretary Leonor Bryans said the module had not passed the standard review process and had since been withdrawn. Teachers at the Pilton Bluecoat Academy in Barnstable, Devon, have been helping to teach pupils at the Vyshensky International School in the Ukraine. Dan Pollack, head of Pilton Bluecoat Academy, said, Pilton Bluecoat offers Ukrainian children sessions in English, maths and word games, but the main focus is the connection that these sessions offer. Children from the Ukraine get the chance to talk to English teachers and to share with them their lives and their stories, an escape for them from some of the everyday horrors. One math session ended with a pet comparison. Pilton Bluecoat also offers the Ukrainian children live sessions at the weekends, as a weekend in Ukraine is long and very different from the weekends our children in Barnstable enjoy. The hope is that these sessions will continue as long as they are needed. This has been your weekend Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about an underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise 
you actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. I'm going to use a phone as an example, but all of these can be applied to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're gonna buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers. Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it and use the same one as them to begin with. Then you get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Right, my next guest today needs absolutely no introduction. I have Action Hero Teacher in the studio. Oh my God, I can't yep, believe yep, you're yep, here. Yep, yep. <laughs> What up, what How up, what up? You? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? I'm on holiday now, so I'm, I'm going to be slightly less professional for you guys. Oh, okay. A teacher saying, what up? How dare you? How dare you on your holidays be relaxed? But yes, um, <laughs> thank you very much, Sylvia. I appreciate this. No, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Carl, for those people um, who don't know um, Action Hero Teacher, he's got a phenomenal background. Can you just explain uh, who you are and what your day-to-day -day role is and what you're working on right now? Certainly, certainly, certainly. So who I am, uh, who is this debonair Duke of Hastings man speaking <laughs> live on radio today uh i love the introduction oh uh they um you know there's steam under my collar um who am i uh my name is carl c pupe i am an author um uh, author a, a speaker and a consultant that runs uh actionheroteacher.com based on the book that i wrote in 2019 called the action hero teacher classroom management made simple uh, currently, I'm part-time uh, in a mainstream school as a uh, alternative provision lead. So I'm in charge of inclusion, um, basically SEMH, and I consult the school in regards to that particular uh, thing. And then um, when I'm not working there, I am doing consultancy uh, for schools, for trusts, for local authorities, in uh, all things behavior. Uh, and yeah, so that's what I kind of do. Uh, what was the other part of the question? Can, Sorry, can I'm so relaxed. Say, can I just say, you are so relaxed and you're downplaying some of your achievements. I'm just going to go through some achievements. Oh, as well. oh. 
Carl has <laughs> Carl has um, worked with a number of organisations, including the NEU, Chartered mm. College of Teaching, and the University of Essex. He's mm. also uh, been ranked by the influential PR and marketing software company Vuelio as one of the top ten education blogs. And your book mm. that you are underplaying was the top. 40 best books for educators summer 2021 and mm. you've also been given a fellowship to the royal society of arts you have got a very prestigious background oh thank you very much you know what? It, it sounds <laughs> it sounds so much better you saying it, it sounds sweeter mm, like a chef's kiss ah, that's delicious thank you very much <laughs> right Carl, can you explain what's the difference between mainstream and alternative provision and why sure. did you choose alternative provision to work in because there are teachers who don't know much about it and sure. are possibly thinking that they might want to go into it and are there any tips you can give as well Absolutely. So the main difference between alternative provision and mainstream is alternative provision from when I was doing it could be different now. But when I was doing it, it was uh, there to cater for students who could not access the mainstream curriculum or could not cope for various reasons. Now, when we think of alternative provision, people just think, oh, it's the naughty kids, the ones that can't cope. Um, but there's various reasons why. So, for example, when we're talking about um, SEMH, social, emotional and mental health difficulties, and your guest, by the way, um, I don't know, Francis, if you're still there, was absolutely brilliant. I loved every minute of what you were saying. <laughs> Wasn't we she come great? From, yeah, I wish we had us both on the same time. At the same time, I don't know what was going on there. Was there no crossover? You know, no, I you know what it was. Her. It was because it, you could have spoken to her, but you woke up late. Remember? <laughs> oh. It, it's them ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. You know them ones, yeah. No, no worries. You know them ones. I talk to my kids, they're like, oh, no, okay, no, no, no. it's like that, sir, yeah. Okay. All no right. No problem. All good. And by the way, listeners, before I get accused of things, I haven't. No, I'm joking. I, had, I have a toddler. So my toddler was demanding breakfast. What you would have heard in the morning is like, daddy! That's what you would have just heard. Daddy! I don't think you want to want to hear that on radio. Oh. So, uh, yeah, that was what was going on. But anyway, what was I saying? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I even forgot the train of thought here. I feel like Boris Johnson is just like, just all over the place. All over the gaff. All over the gaff. I've forgotten as well. Basically, we were talking yes, about... Yes, sorry. <laughs> Having such a, such a good time here. Yeah, so basically, there's various um, needs. So there's various reasons why somebody can end up in alternative provision. When I was doing it, so one of my um highlights of my career was I was a NEATS coordinator which means not in education employment or training and I worked in alternative uh, a, a, an alternative provision uh, institute in East London in a place called the Isle of Dogs and the reason why my particular institution existed or the one I was seconded to was because kids got kicked out of mainstream schooling um like of, out of one or two mainstream schools so as you know child gets excluded you know, and then they can either be a managed move where, you know, obviously you do a swapsies or basically they just get excluded. But what we come to realise or what I came to realise, should I say, is a lot of these children had a lot of uh, needs. Um, Fran Francis was talking about ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. And what you will find is that a lot of these children who have got uh, social, emotional, mental health difficulties um, have often suffered severe trauma in their life. Um, Frankie, again, I keep on mentioning her because she was brilliant. She was talking about domestic violence, DV. We're talking about um, if you've got any substance abuse in the house. Things like homelessness or uh, inadequate housing can all um, count towards someone's mental health. So what we realised was that, you know, it's not about just behaviour was a symptom um, of things, other things going on. As I always say, anger is the bodyguard of pain. 
especially for young boys, right? It, it's what would you rather have if you've got a young boy who lives in? I'm just saying. I'm not saying it's all typical. Um, because so, when we talk about socioeconomics, it can get complicated as well. It's like, oh, mm. all the bad children are poor. It's not. It's not that case as well. I've met children that come from middle class to upper class backgrounds who have got the, uh, similar problems. But just say you've got a child who's inadequately housed. You know, there's just say eight people, a two bedroom council flat. There's no money coming in. One of the parents is a drug addict. Uh, he goes to school. Somebody, you know, says something to him. You know, what is it the easier response for him, or what would be the typical or the socially accepted response? Him break down and cry in front of his peers or him for a chair or, you know, punch somebody in the face or give like a Will Smith slap, you know. In fact, what's so ironic with the Will Smith slap, I looked at yeah. that and I was thinking there's clearly, uh, and I'm not saying it to defame Will Smith, I love him, but there's so, yeah. there's something mental health there. And I've seen that kind of, that just that, that response, that just quick change. It was mm. just interesting looking from a practitioner's eyes, looking at that whole event and how that yeah. happened. But yeah, what would be the socially accepted response? And we saw, uh, you know, we had to bring Will Smith in. He smacked him, <laughs> he got angry. But if you look yeah. at the acceptance speech, he could barely keep himself together. Yeah. Because, you know, that is what, especially with boys, we're, we're, we're conditioned to do. So we, you know, as uh, what I learned, the key things I learned in alternative provision is not only mm. do we have to help them to access the curriculum, but we have to mm. try and help them, you know, yeah. to stabilise them. And as I said, we're not, yeah, let's go on, sorry. Yeah, sorry to just interrupt. I'm, I'm just mm. to make it clear. I'm not laughing at what happened with of the course. Will Smith incident. I'm actually laughing because you've mentioned Will Smith, and uh -huh. uh, and, and I find that funny because he was one of my favourite heroes when I was growing up. Because was everybody in past that. tense. <laughs> You've written him been, off already. No, I haven't written him off. I've not been watching anything that he's produced recently, so therefore oh, that's why I use part. <laughs> Rubbish. Have you watched? Have you watched Gemini Man? I was like, I want my money back. I was like, give me my money back, please. I, but Garbage. as a kid, as a kid, I, I absolutely Prince. loved him. Yeah, and since since becoming an adult, I've only seen a few of these things. I've not really delved into too much. Um, sure. But yeah, um, as you were saying that, it is quite hard to um, deal with these pupils on a daily basis as well, because obviously um, as a teacher, and I know when I'm working in mainstream, mm. when you do have students who have got these um, behavioural needs, it, mm. it can be a bit um, disheartening if you're not mm. able to get through to them, and mm. it can be a bit draining as well. So mm. you, what is it like for you to deal with these students daily? Because an, another thing that happened was, I actually did a pupil referral unit. I worked in mm. one for uh, whilst I was doing supply teaching, and oh, wow. I, I'm not going to lie, it was hard. It's hardcore, <laughs> pupil referral unit for a couple of days during supply, I found it very, very difficult. It's hardcore. I can I can imagine as well as you, a young lady, a, a young, very attractive lady like yourself. They must have been. <laughs> it must you. have been. Oh, they, they, you know, come on, come on. You complimented me. I've got to pay it back in coins. You know what I mean? Quid pro quo and all that. That's how the government operates. You know what I mean? You decided... Sorry, I'm going to get people in trouble, aren't I? I'm no, going to get okay. people in trouble. Sorry. Well, I'm a fellow of the Royal National Society of the Arts, my dear. I can say what I want now. I'm joking. Playing around. So I'm just really relaxed, guys. It's holidays, so I'm just relaxed. I'm just having fun. So but what's yes. it like to work with these students on a daily basis? So to answer your previous question, sorry, because yeah. I get sidetracked, you're asking for tips. So the first, and it kind of relates to what I'm going to say, um, it's always for me Maslow before Bloom. Mm -hmm. It's always mm -hmm. Maslow's hierarchy of needs before Bloom. You could be in the Leonardo da Vinci of art. You can be the Elon Musk of technology. You can be the Ronaldo of PE. But if the kids don't like you or you have no relationship with them, 
they're not going to listen to you. A lot of these people, they've got, there's, uh, especially with uh, SEMH students, typically, should I say, not all, but typically, they have a lot of attachment trauma. So they've had unreliable adults in their life. So you're just another adult that just comes to confront them. So if they don't feel secure with you, they're not going to listen to you. So you've got to work on building those relationships. If you're working in any form of alternative provision, and I think Frankie or Francis, should I say, because she's a head teacher, I've got to use her professional designation. <laughs> Francis, should I say, um, said that, it, you know, if you don't build a relationship with them, you ain't got a chance. And that's what I would say is always relationships first with um, SEMH. Always, always, always. So it segues nicely into what you were saying. What's it like working with these kids? I was one of these kids. As you can clearly tell, I was a smart aleck. Um, and, you know, I was very, and I was raised in a really rough part of East London. Um, you know, I'm very proud of my roots. I'm an East Lander. So am I. I'm from East London as well. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. East side. Yeah, high five. <laughs> no, you don't sound like an East Londoner. You know, I am you... from East London, innit? Oh, well, well, well uh, there you go. The innit. I bet you're from Walthamstow. The innit kind of said it. Innit. Well, yeah, exactly. You go. I won't tell my exact region. Of course. But yeah. We don't want stalkers like you. I don't know if you watched that on Netflix. Somebody be like this. I knew Sobia. You were. Have you ever watched you? No. I'll go and watch it. It's a great program. It's about a stalker. But anyway, jokes aside, let's move on from that. But um, what was I saying? But um, yeah, I was one of those kids. I didn't really engage in school. Uh, I didn't really let out my teachers. Uh, I did okay in my GCSEs, but to, there was various things going on, on for me, which I won't go into, but there was various things going on for me. And, you know... It was it was only until I reached like sixth form and uni where I forgot I've got teachers that really understood me and um really, you know, tried to to build that relationship with me. I know things were different. In the eighties, things were eighties, uh, early nineties, teachers were just of one breed, innit? Just shout at somebody until they cry. And I was not really the guy that liked being shouted at. But <laughs> to be honest, I was getting quite I'll get quite rude. But what I was when I was training, as I said, I never sorry. I never intended to be a teacher. That was never on my wish list of things to do. When I was 16 years of age, you know, when you asked me, I wanted to be like a rapper. Oh, that was my dream job. You know what I mean? I wanted to be an MC. I wanted to, you know, be, you know, singing and all that type. No, not singing, rapping and being tough. If you said to 16-year-old me, Carl, do you want to be a teacher? I would have been laughing my head off. I would have been, yeah. I would have fell off my chair laughing. My teachers would have laughed. Everybody would have laughed because that was just not, in my stars, so to speak. But life happened, like what Francis said. And I started off as a youth worker. I think that's the advantage I've got over other teachers is I started off in alternative provision. So it wasn't so much heavy on the curriculum. It was mm. more about building those relationships, really getting to know the students before you actually approach them and you taught them. So I think going to, to answer your question, I've always come with that mindset of who is, who is John or who is Tyrone or who is... Mohammed, or who is Sarah or who is Montgomery who are they as a person and then that's how I access that so I've always found it easier because I was them so I kind of understand where they're coming from and sometimes they just need as I said they need that positive adult um, to role model and to scaffold their emotions um, because unfortunately some of these guys have never had that so that's what the angle I've always come from if that makes sense yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I, you know, some of the things that you said about being a rapper and things like that, I remember the Obamas saying the exact same thing that, you know. Obama you know, wanted to be a rapper. I no. can't imagine. <laughs> 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 Obama, yeah, yeah. I can imagine him going on to, yeah, no, yeah, everybody. Uh, no, Mike, check, one, two. 
no well when obama was president him and michelle were both saying how um Mm. you know a lot of young black boys were going into things like wanting to go into becoming a rapper or they wanted to be a baller or whatever it was Mm. and he made it very clear in his speech and so did michelle that you need Mm. to set your sights on something bigger than that because you guys have got the ability to do things that are fantastic and aspirational but you Mm. just need to believe in yourself and make those positive changes Mm. um and you know it's like what you said when you're a child you don't think of those things because when i was a child i used to i used to think i was going to be a journalist (laughs) i'm a teacher you can still still be a journalist (laughs) well well, it's not too late is it well it well it's a at that time, there weren't many Asian female journalists. And so for me, it's kind of like it was uh, an opportunity that I didn't pursue. However, uh, the radio station is kind of journalism. So I'm getting the best of both worlds. There you go. There you go. Come on. Pursuit of happiness and all that. Come on. Now, um, you've mentioned four different types of challenging students and you've given Mm -hmm. tips um, you've given tips in your book about how to deal with these students. Have you, you bought this book? Have you bought my book? I'm going to buy your book. <laughs> you know what? Interview done. See you later, everybody. I'm going. How dare you? <laughs> I'm going to buy your book. Can you go through? Can you go through um, mm. the four different tips? Um, sorry. So, where did you get this from? Well, I did my research properly. I told you I'm a journalist. Why aren't you listening to me? <laughs> Sorry, so I'm being a rude guest. So I'll behave no, myself. Not. Yeah, you're not. Um, the four different types of challenging students. Give I'm going to do you for copyright, though. Yeah. How to deal with them? <laughs> what strategies did you find to be effective and not effective? Right. So let's let's go through it one by one. So in my book, I mentioned four different types of learner. Um, so I have a theory which I invented myself. I'm very proud of myself. Called Trust Mountain. So if I walked into any of your classrooms right now, you've got 30 kids typically. Mm. Just say whatever. 30 kids, 25 kids, whatever. I don't look at that a classroom as a homogenous blob of kids. I, in my mind, my spider sense is going off, and I'm looking at all right. There are four types of behaviour that will be presented. All right, and I'm looking at who fits. Um, each designation so let's go for it really quickly so imagine a pyramid not illuminati imagine a pyramid and you've got (laughs) let me not get myself into trouble you've got four layers the bottom layer which is the most disruptive layer features guess what the disruptors now the disruptors are students who you cannot engage with in class and the difference between a disruptor and the next level is basically is how they respond to instruction so if you say johnny can you take off your jacket or johnny can you you know get on with your work what a disruptor will do is a disruptor will stop all learning for everybody in the class. They're the ones that tend to argue, to, to talk back, to make a scene. You know, those are the ones where you actively can't teach anymore and you have to deal with them. That's a disruptor. Usually they can be quite aggressive or just uh, disengaged. Next level is what I call compliant. And compliant students are, as the name suggests, they comply. They do the bare minimum, all right? So if you say, Johnny, can you, you know, get on with your work? They'll do the bare minimum. They, this is the home of the class clowns. They don't tend to be as aggressive, but these are the home of what I call the can yous. Not Kanye, can you? Can you sit down? Can you get your pen out? Can you take off your jacket? Can you, can you, can you, can you? Can, you can make a great album, right? These are the can yous, the classroom jokers. Next level is what I call, I'm even forgetting my own book now, positives. And positives, basically, they, they, it's not that they can't, ma- you know, they, it's not that they're not naughty, but the difference is they can reflect on their behavior. These are the kids where you can just look at them and, you know, they have their phone out and you, you look at them. It's like, oh, sorry, sir. Sorry, miss. 
and you're like, okay, cool. And that's a, a really important place to be because they know what they're doing is wrong. And then you have engaged. That's like the get into teaching. That's the last layer. Hogwarts, that's the dream. Like Aladdin on the carpet, you're flying in the air. Everything is lovely. Um, um, and basically, um, it's not so much what you have to buy my book to get all the tips. Um, but it's not what I would say to people <laughs> is when you walk into a classroom, um, you know, it would be lovely if everybody was engaged, a whole new world of Aladdin, you know, you're dreaming, but it's not going to be possible. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It's not possible. It could take years to do. Um, and it dep- if you've got a child that's been, you know, uh, you know, there's domestic violence or something going on in his life, he, the best he might get is compliant or she might get is be, or they might get is being compliant. Um, I would say what you want to do is to try and get every child up one level. And your classroom would change. So if you have a really disruptive student, you get them to comply, you're winning, right? If you get a compliant student to be positive, you're winning. If you get a positive student to be engaged, then you've won. And that's possible to do. Um, the key tip, I would say, and I say this in my book, I, I, I stole this from Eleanor Roosevelt. It's very, very simple. No one will care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's so simple. And the book, if there's a golden thread in my book, it's that. Build that relationship with your students. Your authority, your ability to tell them what to do will get you to the door. But it's that relationship with your student that will open it. You can tell a kid, you know, sit down, open your book, do as you're told. They might comply, they might not for various reasons. But if you've built that relationship, it'll be, you'll have an easier job than if you're just shouting and screaming all day. And it's just not good for you as well. You know, mental health is important. And obviously the biggest challenge for all teachers, and that includes me as well, 17 mm. years in, is wow. low-level disruption. Yeah, low-level disruption and apathy. How would you deal with those students? Because it's okay if you've got one or two students who are presenting, you mm. know, those symptoms. But if you're having to deal with huge huge amounts of students within one class who are all mm. displaying the same behavior mm-hmm. it can get difficult and tiresome absolutely um what i'd say to people um, in that particular regard is that you need to establish what i call a social contract and i put this all in the book by the way i'm plugging very heavily today but you've asked the question sobia so i am going to answer so um in my, <laughs> in my <laughs> book um the action era teacher i talk about something called the social contract and this is what worked when um, I was working in alternative provision because, you know, these kids have... So if you imagine in a PRU or any form of alternative provision, these kids have not been able to access mainstream school. And that's a trauma in of itself. That is a rejection. When you're being booted out of school, that's very traumatising. So they come to your place and they're like, why should I even bother with you? Because you know what I mean? People don't like me already. I'm a bad boy. I'm a bad girl. I'm a bad person. So you have to try and engage them. So what I did was... Basically, I, I established something called the social contract. And I, I just said to them, look, and I was a supply teacher as well for a number of years as well. And that's what stopped me getting eaten up by these kids. But I said, look, we're going to have to work together for an hour, a week, a month, whatever. And I want to talk to you. I want us this to work. But you've got to tell me what you want. And I've got to tell, tell me, you know, I, I, you've got to understand what the expectations. This doesn't uh, nullify, you know, your behavior policy in the school. I'm not saying, you know, throw it out. You know, uh, forget about the rules. Of course, bring the rules in, but you must have that discussion with your young people. And the reason being is that you've got to imagine for them, they the, they are being dictated to. The moment they step into school, they're told, um, you know, have the right uniform, have the correct pen. They're being told what to do. They don't feel like they've got any agency, right? 
And sometimes the lack of agency makes them want to rebel. Think about yourself when you're in a meeting. You know, when we're in them boring staff meetings, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not the only one, all right? And the person's <laughs> droning on and on and on and they're so boring. And then you start, you know, you're texting your mate who's next to you, funny jokes. You know, you're, 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 you're doing things, you're laughing at inappropriate moments. We're adults, you know? Mm. So think about how difficult it is for them. If you reach out and you, you know, and I've done this for, you know, I've been in education for about 12 years. If you are willing to go and talk to them and be honest and say, look, what do you want? What do I want? And let's try and find a common ground. They will listen. Nine times out of 10, they will listen to you because as an adult, wow, an adult asked me for my opinion. So you create this social contract of the culture of what you want in your class. You get them all to agree and say, look, you guys, we made this together. So it's just an enhancement. For me, it's an enhancement on the behavior policy because some schools' behavior policies are rubbish. It doesn't even make any sense, right? But I won't even go into that. But you've got to have that buy-in to create mm. that culture, right? And if you can do that, and in the book I outline how you do that, if you can do that, then you'll find your life a lot easier. And I agree with a lot of things that you're saying because obviously that's the way that I've been trained as well. But mm. there comes a point when you are teaching and there's members of SLT who dismiss severe behavioural issues and excuse it as a mm. child having special educational needs. So, for example, if a child does have special educational needs, that's separate from behaviour sometimes. Mm. And how would you, how would you, how should teachers deal with that? That's a very good question. Right. And I, again, I outline this in my book. I just keep on saying it. But, okay there are times where you might make an allowances for certain types of behavior i.e i remember there was a particular when i was in mainstream school and i i, I went to, into a particular school there was a boy who basically he had very poor hygiene and he just basically wouldn't dress up properly um and, but what to cut, cut a long story short what we found out was that he you know he he there was severe domestic um, violence in the house and the reason why he was always so uh, unkept he couldn't have a blazers because he was basically sofa surfing like couch surfing he was always in some like a a mum's friend's house whenever the dad got violent they had to flee um so obviously penalizing him and saying you know where's your uniform where's your so you know he could be wearing the same shirt for three four days in fact that might be the only clothes because the mum is trying to get away from the father so they're like almost on the run and obviously that was a cp so child protection issue and, you know, we helped him out. But it, it would be unfair to penalise him for his uniform. Does that make sense? Because of the situation he's going through. But there has to come a line. And this is where um, I, I speak about this with the social contract. Yes, there might be things where, you know, we, we could talk about emotional dysregulation where a child might have violent outbursts. But if it's endangering other people or their outburst is at risk of causing people problems. That's where a line has to be drawn. And I worked in alternative provision for five years. And we made, you know, you could be angry. There's, there's so many, and I'm sure you know this, there's so many methods of dealing with things like this. So, for example, if you've got a child who, you know, uh, I don't want to go too much into the neuroscience, but basically when we talk about emotional dysregulation, they go into um, what we call fight or flight responses. And one of the, you know, you've got the classic fight, flight or fright. So just say they, you know, they get angry, they get become dysregulated, they become aggressive, they become, you know, violent for want of a better term. Okay. Mm. If they, you know, and the core of it is again their traumas and stuff like that. What you'll have to do is work with that young person, get a statement, speak to the mm. senko, speak to whoever the SEMH lead is in your school, and they will help you out with this. So what you could say to that particular child is, I understand that for various reasons you might lose your temper. 
but rather than smashing up a wall or something have a you know like you can get a ball a squeezy ball you can take you know give them a note so they can walk outside i don't mind mm. if they even go to the playground scream and shout and then come back in the room but if you go around smacking people i've got a problem mm. with that so you've got to make this is why it's important to establish um very good routines in your school or in your classroom so there's an mm. understanding that that's not acceptable if the young mm. person says look i've got this this and this you've got hope because at least they understand themselves right but you mm. must make it absolute. I, I'm not going to... I've got to be careful how I say this. Barring very, very special circumstances, things like mm. violence and abuse are not allowed in my classroom. And when I say mm. very, very special circumstances, you know what? Actually, no, I take that back. There's virtually no circumstance where that's allowed. And they have mm. to understand that. Because another thing we've got to remember, Sobia, is that we are preparing these kids for the real world. And the yeah. thing that annoys me about some schools is that if we make too many allowances, it's almost like a spectrum. Yes, you, you, you want to do... And again, I talk about this in my book in terms of classroom leadership style. You mm. want to be flexible and understanding, but at the same time, you have to have boundaries and rules because guess what? We live in a society with boundaries and rules. Yeah. And if we do not... And one of the things as the role in my, my, my school, uh, especially mm. when I'm dealing with inclusion kids, is we have to teach them resilience. We yeah. have to teach them that, okay, this bad thing has happened to you okay mm. you've had you know you've come from a, a bad background I as I said earlier I came not from you know I, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth you know yeah I came from not the greatest background in the world mm. but what you've got to understand especially for the older children I think this is especially more pertinent for secondary school children is that you're entering a, a world where there are rules and boundaries and people do not have time to deal with your problems I say this to the kids um, especially the older ones you know you know, if your parent dies or somebody mm. you love dies, you've got two weeks. And yeah. then after that, you've got to be back in work on your A game. And the kids mm. always look at me like, no, I can't believe that. That's out of order. I go, that's every job I can think of. There's not been a job. Obviously, it's the discretion of the employer, depending on the circumstances. But in law, you have got mm. two weeks to, to grieve a mm. fortnight. And then you have to be back in work. So I think there's a an argument where we have to teach our kids resilience and how to follow certain rules. So going back to your question, I make yeah. it very clear of my expectations in the classroom. Yeah. I make it very, very crystal clear, right? I spell it out for them. And then if something is, uh, if there's an infraction, I basically give them the choice. I say, look, this is what we agreed to at the beginning of term or the beginning of the year or yesterday or here. You've broken this. You tell me what you want to do. The easy way of dealing with it is you apologize or we try and make it right. Or the hard way of dealing with it, we have to go through the sanction process. All right. You can do it in a way where you don't break the relationship and you can explain. So you sanction them. And again, I put this in my book, but they've got to understand their boundaries. And what really aggravates me is that we say, oh, you know, this kid smacked another kid. Oh, but, you know, he's got so much going through, you know, yeah. in his personal life. And, you know, there's lots of things he's inflicted a trauma onto this kid now. Yeah. By smacking this kid on the face. And I'm sorry, I have to bring the Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock thing. And, you know, people saying, you know, he's got a lot of pressure. But I was like, it was interesting with that because everybody was consoling Will Smith. But where mm. was, like, they were showing pictures, but there was a picture that really broke my heart of Chris Rock, like, in the aftermath. And he looked dazed and confused. And what you'll find out with Chris Rock is that he used to be bullied. He was severely bullied as a child. Mm. So we didn't think about the trauma on him. You know, it's all well and good, like Denzel Washington and everybody, you know, consoling Will Smith. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be consoled. But let's now Chris Rock is traumatized. 
So I have to protect the rights of everybody in that class. So that's where yeah. I kind of stand with that, if that makes sense. And that, yeah, of course. And I totally agree with that because for me, one of my biggest pet peeves is the fact that, you know, one child, for example, or two children should not be disrupting the rest of the class. Like you say, we mm. live in a society where we do have to follow rules and we do have boundaries and kids like boundaries. You need to mm. be fair but firm. And I, I just find it very, very distressing sometimes when, I, when I'm working in different types of contexts and the mm. senior leadership team or whoever it is or, you know, even the Senko start making excuses for different types of behaviour and you're just sitting there thinking no. Because obviously we, I do know, and I'm going to come on to this a bit, it does come back down to funding as well, which I'll come over uh, in a bit. Um, Carl, we haven't got very long left, but I wanted sure. to ask you a few more questions. Have sure. you read the um, the white paper that was released recently? Is this by Nadim Zahari? Uh yeah. Uh, it's about 400 pages. Uh, okay, I, I've so, got the summary for him. <laughs> okay, so basically, i just quickly go through it for you. He says sure. that behaviour is an area of interest for parents and children with special educational needs, um, and behaviour is communication. And we talked about this earlier with uh, Frankie as well. But mm. it says something interesting. Um, it says... Um, in a school with zero tolerance behavior policy, that means children mm -hmm. with special educational needs, whether known or unknown, are more likely mm. to end up disciplined or excluded. Mm. So my question to you, um, and this is a, a huge topic of conversation, which I don't think we'll be able to go through everything sure. today, mm -hmm. but where do you stand on exclusions? Wow, that, that, that is a whole, a whole hornet's nest, which I'm going to try and skate through. Yes. Right. <laughs> I don't believe in uh, no exclusions. I don't believe in that. Uh, I'm, uh -huh. It's a controversial topic. As I said, now in my school, I, uh -huh. I'm, I, I consult, so I go to panel and I talk about these things. If a child brings in a knife, or if a child uh -huh. brings in drugs or whatnot, they have to be excluded, I'm sorry. Um, uh -huh. Because what message is that sending out to the school body? Because I know, and it might get me in trouble with, you know, certain activists who say, you know, we should never exclude under any circumstances. If somebody is, you know, a clear and present danger to the yeah. school body, as we know, who was that head teacher that got stabbed to death years ago, about 20 years ago now? I can't remember. But I remember he was a head teacher. Yeah, I remember And a boy brought well. in a knife. He was excluded. And the boy come in to try and stab mm -hmm. somebody. And then he got in the way and he got killed. You know, that boy was a clear and present danger that teacher is now not here because of that so those circumstances were exclusion but on the other hand of it is you as a school have to ensure you have done everything possible so just say let's take the knife thing or the gun thing or that type of thing out of the way just say you've got a child who's not engaged in class has mm -hmm. he been assessed or has she been assessed or have they been assessed all right we have got to make sure that we scaffold that child the very best that we can because again, as I was talking about earlier, if they've, especially if they've got SEMH, and the, the terrifying thing is 51%, no, I think not 51%, I think something like, sorry, 70%, or I think it's 80% actually, something along them lines of all people in prison mm. have some form of un, uh, either recognised or unrecognised SEN difficulty that wasn't picked mm. up in school. They call it the school to prison pipeline. So yeah. we, we shouldn't treat it as behaviour, we should treat this as part of our mental health and well-being. And that is where I will start. I would fight for children. 
um, in that regard. Because obviously, okay, a, so I'm going to yeah. stop you here for a minute, yeah. Carl. I understand everything you're saying. So I'm just mm. going to explain a few things to people because sure. um, I read an article and I'd just like your thoughts on it. So mm. the article was by somebody called Andrew Old and he, he asked the mm. question, does being expelled or suspended turn you into a criminal? And for those people who are unsure, suspension is where pupils are temporarily removed from school and permanent mm. exclusion is when a pupil no longer is allowed to attend a school. And mm. he, he argues that there's no school to prison pipeline here. So the things that he says are suspended pupils may be more likely to be cautioned or sentenced, but they are not likely to be cautioned and sentenced. You can't expect suspended children to become violent offenders. And permanently excluded are more likely to be cautioned or suspended, but the vast majority will not be cautioned or sentenced for a serious violence offence. So the contentious issue, and I, I would like your thoughts on this, does suspension or exclusion cause offending behaviour based on your background of youth work and what you know? I Does respect- it cause people to commit crimes? Absolutely. I, I respectfully disagree. I very respectfully disagree with the article. From my, I can only talk about my experience. Now, I'm sure, like everybody else in the country, you watch Top Boy, right? Have you seen the show Top Boy? No, what's Top Boy? Don't worry about that. We'll talk offline about that. <laughs> okay. All right. So ba- basically, it's a show about um, it's a show basically about um, East London gangs and okay. drugs and so on and so forth. In my experience, mm-hmm. so just to, to quickly paraphrase, I, I'm sure I don't know because again, I haven't read the article, so I don't know where he's getting the information from. But I can only talk from my experience. If you've got a young person who is mm-hmm. not engaged in school, and I worked in the Isle of Dogs, um, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with, yes, what I ends am. up happening? especially if, they, if they're in a particularly, not a particularly nice area. That young person is off school. He's been suspended. The school's not checking up on him. He's been excluded. And as you know, sometimes when you exclude a child, it doesn't automatically mean there'll be a place in another school. It can take weeks or even months, depending on what's going on in the local authority. That child is at home. The parent, more often than not, is not supervising that child because they have to go to work. What gangs will do, like they groom children, so they'll see that this boy or girl is constantly, you know, at home or walking up and down the street. What, what, what will they go and do? They'll say, look, do you want to make some easy money? You know, carry this. Just take this bag from here to here. Don't look what's in the bag. Here's £100. Imagine if you're a kid off school. It's fun. It's exciting. It's games. And then it leads on to things like country lines. Then it leads on to things like, you know, antisocial behavior to join the gang. You know, let's just punch somebody in the face or whatnot, what have you. And, it, 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 and as a NEETS coordinator, why I'm passionate about this, this was my job to stop this mm. from happening. Because there's a saying, the devil makes work for idle hands. If you've got these kids that are disengaged from school, they don't really, and especially if they come from a socioeconomic background where they don't see lawyers or they don't see doctors, you know, uh, they're living, you know, not in the nicest of places. And somebody's coming and saying, we're going to give you £1,000 just to take a bag from here to Manchester. You know, what other options do they have? And this is the problem I find. And again, being respectful, because I haven't read the article, is that it depends on the context that you're in. Maybe if somebody gets excluded and you live in a middle to upper class area, that might not happen for you because you will have a lot more support. You will have a lot more services. You will have a lot more, you know, as we said, funding, you know, when we get the funding cuts, it hits the poorer areas. I hate saying the word poorer, but the ones in the most uh, dire socioeconomic disadvantaged, because I hate that, yeah, but disadvantaged areas. So, of course, if you've got a young person where the dad, you know, your dad's a banker, and maybe he can get you a private tutor, or maybe he can send you for, you know, extra help with 
therapists. As you, we know with CAMS, CAMS has been stripped to the bone for the last seven to eight years. So kids that really need the help can't get the help. But if you've got the money, of course you can talk to a private therapist. And these are the things that happen. So I respectfully disagree with that statement because if, if you're in a particular context where you do not have you know, the services or the, you know, funding or the means to be able to get that extra help, bad things tend to happen. And so that leads me nicely on to the next question. If you mm. could change the education system, what three things would you change? Okay, number one, we need to get money. We need to talk money. Um, uh, we need a G- if I was the education secretary, I'll do a GCSE about money. And the reason being, as I said again, what, you will find, what I have found in my teaching career, especially working in some of the, the poorest places, not in, in London and perhaps the UK, so I worked all around Tower Hamlets, I worked in Newham, um, I worked all around, is that the major problems are to do, you know, are to do with socioeconomics. The reason why some of these kids are do, do not engage in class is because they don't see a point, right? It, you know, you have kids, I've spoken to kids who, you know, they, they're, they're siblings, they come from working class backgrounds, their siblings went to go and get, you know, degrees, they got their degrees, and because they didn't have the social capital or the connections, they couldn't get decent jobs. So they're like, hold on, I watched my brother and sister struggle. They're 30 grand in debt now. They can't get, they haven't got a decent job or the job that was promised to them. Why don't I go and sell drugs? Or why don't I go and pursue something else? So what we've got to understand is that we've got to teach the the, the younger generation the the ways of making money, personal finance, all these things, because not only would it change their life, it could change their whole family's life. And I'm very passionate about that. Personal finance needs to be taught as a GCSE. That's number one. Number two and three, that's a good question. That's actually a very good question. That's probably my number one. Let's just say that's one, two and three for me for now. For time. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't believe you're on today. I, it's been absolutely wonderful to Thank host you. you. Um, you. I'm hoping you're going to come back on for me sometime and maybe possibly you my host book. your own show. <laughs> I'll buy your book, don't worry. Yeah, there you go. There I'll you go. give you the funds. <laughs> East London in the house, people. East London in the house. You dropped it. Give, 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 give me the funds, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Them ones there, yeah. But no, no, all good. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really loved it. I really enjoyed the show, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, and I'm hoping you become a host one day as well. Okay. I'll talk to my lawyer. All right, cool. <laughs> right, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it and I've really appreciated you coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Right, having had one week break, I did get away, um, which is why I'm so chirpy today. I'm going to go work for another week now. And um, The people who actually oh, claim no. that teachers have got 12 or 13 weeks off is a complete lie. Lies. Um, yeah, next up we've got Maud and we've also got Tom Starkey this evening. You've been an absolutely fantastic fantastic audience um the guests Thank i've you. had both frankie and both carl have been phenomenal today really really enjoyed it i mm. will see you all in two weeks time take care take bye care. you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.